how can we help our customers identify items that need to be recycled? Where are they getting recycled? We have a big focus now on, on enabling the circularity process. And I think as a consumers, that's where a lot of consumers struggle is they want to do the right thing and ensure their, their product gets a second life, third life even. They don't know where it needs to go and there isn't always the infrastructure that's been created to support that. And so what can we do around that? It's about identifying those next steps and enabling those next steps because now you've got an intelligent label on it, which is what we really call our technology. If transparency, you know, if I'm a consumer, makes sense, but also if I'm a brand or retailer, it makes sense as well. You know, I need to understand where my product's at and then where it's been. And, you know, in the example of food waste, having more transparency into my operation, I can avoid X amount of costs around food waste. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Tyler Chaffer, Global Sustainability Manager for Avery Denison, Retail Branding and Information System. Welcome, Tyler. Thank you for having me, Vidya. In the modern society, we consume far more than, say, our ancestors about 100 years ago. Do you have any evidence of how much a person consumes today as against, say, 100 years ago? You know, one of the best ways to look at that is probably if you look at the apparel segment. And my company, Avery Dennison, one of our largest segments specifically for the division that I work for is focused on the apparel industry. And the apparel industry is obviously a very large global industry and impacts a lot of populations. On average, about 120 billion garments are made each year. So I think if you think about just going off of the numbers, you know, you can look back, you know, mm-hmm. if we go back to populations from 100 years ago, how many garments that would mean per person, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at a, a population of a billion globally, you know, that's 120 garments per person made each year. So obviously, our, our consumption has certainly gone up. Yeah, I think that's certainly a function of a number of factors. And it's certainly one of the main ones is just that we overconsume. I remember my aunt and my grandmother who lived in a village in India about 50, 80 years ago. And my aunt would say she had a set of clothes on the clothesline and uh, one she was wearing, one spare and couple of clothes that they would wear on fancy occasions like a function or a wedding. So each person probably had five or six sets at any point in time. And that is probably, if not 100, at least 10 times more than each of us has uh, at this point in time. Yeah, I think, you know, part of that is, you know, we live in a fast-paced society and consumers more than ever, they want to live in seasonality and styles. And so, you know, styles are increasingly changing. You look at the advent of the internet and, you know, being able to engage more uh, quickly with with folks around the globe now because of that you know these trends have just proliferated and now they've proliferated because of globalization because they can mm-hmm. you know the average lifespan of a garment is in some places like the uk is really probably about six months you know and then they're hitting the landfill and so when you look at that it's not really surprising to think that you know we are, we are making too many garments and we're also not designing garments for circularity mm-hmm. you know we're not designing garments to really be reused. And so I think all these things are changing now and because there's been such a heightened sense on, on the impact of, of certainly our clothes, but other consumables that, you know, that we as everyday consumers uh, purchase. 
But I think part of that is, you know, we, we haven't really designed for circularity, which is you know, something we're aggressively making strides with, but not something that we're fully there yet. If you had to quantify the waste in the fashion industry alone, what would it be? I mean, I think on average, I mean, something around 20% of garments end up in a landfill. And so 20% of 120 billion is really a big number. When you think of an industry that's accountable for, you know, over 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions, there's a lot of greenhouse gas emissions that we can probably avoid. And, you know, obviously with climate change getting ever more focused as it rightfully should, Mm -hmm. Now, I think a lot of industries are seeing areas of opportunity to really reduce these numbers. So how can we make the right number of garments? I think the best way to do that. And that's something that, that Avery Dennison's really focused on. And that's something that our, our technology has done for a while is how do we actually right size our inventories? Because if we right size our inventories, that has a trickle up effect. Right. You know, now I have less manufacturing. I'm sourcing less cotton. I'm making the right amount versus sending what I overproduce to landfill. And there's a lot of other things happening throughout the value chain that I'm really excited about. Uh, Talking about the fashion industry, so much of the waste is because of the minimum order quantity. Mm. Just really long lead times. How is your technology helping? I think one of the ways in which it helped, and this is, and simplistically how it was first adopted is just, you know, if I have a more accurate view of my inventory, then I need to necessarily order less. Mm -hmm. If I also know where my products are at, then I can better know where I need to fulfill from. So now I'm I'm pushing less product out there and instead I'm pulling product as I need it. And so these numbers of these 20% of garments that are hitting the landfills shouldn't happen as much. And now I'm also, you know, there's a big focus in general across industries on localization of supply chains. You know, one, they're more reactive, so changes in demand. Two, they're inherently thought to be more sustainable for obvious reasons. So if we can give better transparency into the flows of products, then now I don't need to fulfill my orders from so far away. I want to say, you know, you two things happen. Well, you had many things happen, but really two things that stick out to me for, for our businesses. You had this exposure of sustainability heightened during the pandemic and also the a confluence of sustainability, but also more resilient supply chains. And so how can I ensure I have product in exactly right when I need it? And I can tell you the number of customers that actually were not able to do business because you know they had closures in certain areas and they had demand, but they didn't have the supply. And then they had the supply over here, but they're not the demand here. So not having great visibility into cause a misconnection versus you know not having supply and demand in harmony. Mm-hmm. You look at just the food industry. You know you had simultaneously miles long food bank lines while farmers were having to dump out gallons upon gallons of milk because they could not marry up the supply and demand, which is also a massive sustainability issue for obvious reasons. I thought of one application. I'm sure you've thought about it too. One of our guests, their nonprofit is The Farmling Project. And two young, energetic, just lovely um, individuals who saw the problem where food was being wasted in the farms and hunger in the urban areas and not enough food in the food banks. So they connected both parts of the supply chain and brought forth the solution. So they are now in 48 states across the United States. So I was wondering if there is a way that your technology can be used for them to say that, hey, in this zip code, in this warehouse, this grocery store has two pallets of uh, lettuce had sitting, you know, which are expiring in a week? It's a great question. And, and the short answer 
is absolutely yes. Our, our technology can be used to do that. Our technology is being used to do that right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not necessarily that exact application, but certainly within connecting supply with demand. Some of our most successful, I'll say, customers with adopting RFID saw that during the pandemic, the need for a resilient supply chain and the need to have product exactly where demand was. That happened with apparel products, happened with beauty products, and even happened with food products. I mean, we certainly saw within this country, as well as other places like the UK, as well as around the globe, where you had crops rotting in the fields, farmers dumping out milk, while at the same time, you had this mile-long food bank lines. And so we had this inability to connect supply with demand. And inherently, that's what RFID does. And it's expanding that. We have a large, very large focus on the food space now. And it's an area of opportunity where we need to avoid food wasting. Mm-hmm. One of the best ways to avoid food wasting is to ensure food gets consumed before it expires. And so using our technology, which that network probably didn't exist five years ago, but now it can alter technology. So the classic mantra for sustainability up to now, say a few years ago, it was reduce, reuse, recycle. But for us to attain, the achieve the sustainability goals, we have to go further. We have to go to a zero waste future. Yeah. And how is Avery Dennison helping? Yeah, Avery Dennison, we're not a new company, right? We've been around for 80 plus years. And, you know, we're a company that I think is is rather progressive and nimble for an, for an 80-year-old company that's, you know, billions of dollars in, in revenue and, and operates in X amount of countries globally. Mm-hmm. One of the ways I think we first looked at that was how do we reduce the waste in our own facilities? And so, you know, then that translates to our customers. And so... Give me an example how you... Sure. So just for my own division that we work, a lot of the products we make are what's called RFID. RFID has been widely adopted within the retail apparel space. You know, we were really one of the first makers of RFID that were able to recycle our excess aluminum. Mm-hmm. We also are recycling our excess labels used during manufacturing and things that go along with that manufacturing. So matrices and, and things that are typically hard to recycle. Ultimately, we have a goal of being our sites being 95% landfill free for 2025 with that number going up for 2030. And so we really started, I think, focus there um, and then look to really influence the industry that we serve. And so, you know, the industries we serve are, are, are really the apparel industry primarily, but now branching out to other industries. And so, you know, going zero waste is now using the technology that we make primarily and reducing waste within our customers' own value chains, which I think for us as a company is really progressive. And I think that's really what's going to have the long-term impact and also where we'll have the greatest impact because of the number of companies and industries that we touch. So 2025, so you're talking four years. Right. It's something that we've set those goals back in 2015. We've really, some of those goals we've already even met or even eclipsed. And so we recently, just within the past few weeks, announced our own 2030 targets. I think we're continuing to do more. We're continuing to learn. We're continuing to say we are a large company and we can use our scale for good. So how can we influence the markets that we serve? Mm -hmm. So now that we're influencing this reduction in waste. One of the things that our sister division within Avery works with is uh, labels and packaging primarily. So think of pressure-sensitive labels that go on a lot of consumer packaged goods. Uh, traditionally, there's a lot of waste sometimes that is generated whenever these labels are, are applied to bottles and other packaging. Um, so we actually were one of the leaders in creating the Circular Economy for Labels, or C-Lab. So working with other label makers label users, label printers to, to really focus on creating this infrastructure to take back excess waste. 
when I go to a conference and I have the label in which I write my name and stick it on my label, that is made by your company too? Depending on the, the end type label company that was with, then potentially we made the adhesive, we made the raw material that that was printed upon. And that was something that's a core business of ours. Uh, we used to have a division called Office Products which was largely focused in a lot of that area as well. So I spent a lot of time researching your company. Yeah. And it is so deep and almost profound in, in the way that you are trying to impact the sustainability goals that you have. But before we delve there, name one sustainability goal that you've said you have already met in the past. You said you had some targets for 2025 and some of the goals were already met. Give me an example. Right. So I think one of the goals that we've really already met is our goal on landfill free. So we're really already at that target, 95% for most of our sites. So that is something that mm -hmm. we said, hey, how, how can we push this further? And not just being landfill free, but there's a nuance between not sending something to landfill, but also ensuring that it gets recycled. Uh, some of our sites, you know, due to you know, we're in global locations and the infrastructure to support recycling isn't always the same as it is else places. And so items that we manufacture can actually be recycled. And so we send it as waste to energy. So effectively it gets incinerated, which is not the same as getting recycled. It's not as bad as sending it to landfill, but ultimately we want to extract, continue to extract value from the products we source for as long as possible. So you said you incinerate it now? Yeah, um, items that, you know, can't be sent for recycling. And so that's a very small amount of material that comes from our facilities and really dependent on location. Predominantly, everything gets sent for recycling. So what would normally go to the landfills and how have you tackled that? Yeah, I think a lot of stuff that normally would go to landfills were, you know, the hard to recycle items. You know, the items that, you know, I think as a consumer, you think you can drop in your recycling bin at home, but, you know, really you can and and really what that comes down to is, you know, items that aren't monomaterial are oftentimes tough for recyclers to manage. Mm -hmm. So if we look at RFID and RFID is a number of items combined together, it can have an aluminum antenna, can be combined with paper. For some areas, they can't necessarily do that delamination or separation to extract the aluminum value, extract the paper value. In other locations, they can, but in those locations that they cannot, in some places where it will be sent for incineration. But again, that's usually a typically small amount. We've talked about RFID, and RFID is a radio frequency identification, the sensors that are embedded in so many things that we purchase, right? So like in the checkout counter or when you leave a store and the sensor comes on, is that RFID too? Yeah, so... Let me give you a little background around what our, our division really does. And so the division that we sit under, which rolls up into retail branding and information solutions, is actually called Avery Dennison Smart Track. And our, our pledge, our mission is really to give everyday items a unique digital identity, a digital twin, which you've probably seen that term thrown around. And so what that means is you have a unique item. And so let's say you have 10 large gray t-shirts as opposed to having 10 of the same large gray t-shirt, these are now 10 unique items, regardless if they're the same UPC number. Mm -hmm. And so there's a number of ways in which we do that. Predominantly, we've done it through RFID. And RFID is, is generally what you see in most retailers. It's been widely adopted within North America. It's been widely adopted within the EU. And generally, it's been used for in-store for inventory accuracy because you can scan 
many thousands of items in, in only a few seconds. So what that gives you is the ability to get much better data and much better visibility that's happening now in real time versus when I'm able to, let's say, physically count items, which one, only happens about once a year, and two, is very costly from a labor perspective. So how is it different from a barcode scanner? So a barcode scanner, you know, would function in a similar manner so that you count but you would, it happens much more slowly, right? So you know, generally, when we first used to show what RFID did, we used to do a side-by-side -side comparison where we would show someone using barcode next to someone using RFID. And, you know, I would scan 20 items with barcode and 20,000 items with RFID to give you an example. Yeah, how does it work? Is there like a reader? Yeah, so there's a reader that basically sends out an RF signal. So RF is, you know, think about it from a microwave. So it's radio frequency. Basically, it sends out a signal. It interacts with a chip that's actually a part of the RFID item, which is on a an apparel price ticket. Mm -hmm. That then sends back information and says, "Yes, this is what I am." And then all the intelligence quickly, you know, this is happening in in, in just a fraction of a second. So now I'm counting all these items, and while I count them. I'm able to uniquely identify which item is which, not only for what that item is, where it came from, you know, it came from this factory on this date using this cotton. And so now I get much deeper levels of visibility, mm -hmm. which obviously data is power. And now that I have this information, what can I do with it? Which is what I'm really excited to talk further about. What is the range of this reader? Yeah, it depends. But in general, if we're talking handheld readers and we're looking at the apparel space, uh, you can read from anywhere from 10 to 20 feet. So really, you think about that. Now, that's what's really unlocked retailers to do a lot of different things. You know, it enables things like omnichannel, where now I can fill orders from my store. So from an environmental perspective, rather than having all these distribution centers, which may not be close to consumers, I can now fulfill online orders directly from store. So I'm reducing my packaging, again, zero waste. I'm reducing my need for multiple ship to locations. And, you know, mm -hmm. we have a big focus now on logistics and how am I optimizing my last mile fulfillment? So I'm doing this all because now I have better data and more confidence in my data to manage this. I'm a little bit intrigued about the basic chip. How big is it? Yeah, the chip, the way to think about it is really a, a grain of sand. It's really the brain's of this item. If you look at an RFID price ticket now, to the average consumer, they wouldn't see any difference between a, a non-RFID price ticket. Mm -hmm. You know, we put the RFID, what's called an inlay in different form factors, could be in a printed fabric label, like a care label. It could be on a sticker that goes on a shoebox. And really, it's almost invisible, the consumer, and the size is really quite small. Uh, the chip is adhered to an antenna and the antenna is really what captures this energy and sends it out and that's really what makes the person who's managing the reading process the ability to read from such great distances and really what makes RFID so powerful and really why it's been so widely adopted. So where does it get its energy from? Does the RFID have its own energy or the reader beams and it just bounces off that? It is a really great question and so I should have prefaced with so this is all passive RFID. So passive ultra high frequency. And effectively what that means is it doesn't have its own energy source, does not have a battery. And so the energy comes from the reader. So you could have a handheld reader. A lot of people like to think it looks like Star Trek or something like that. Or you could have a reader that's on a wall. And so as I walk by somewhere in a store, it reads it. So the energy comes from there. It activates the chip. Chip turns on and then it sends out a signal and then it deactivates. There are, of course, other types of RFE that are active that have batteries. 
the best way to think of those are think of your highway tolling systems and uh, easy pass as it's called throughout most throughout a large part of the country and th- that's a form of active RFP that sends out signals so what do you do exactly after you collect this data the data is really i think where you know you see the, the impact happen because once you have the data it really is whatever you want to do with it you know you have you know, then of course, sometimes that's where you see these nuances between customers and retailers that adopt RFID is, you know, they can use it any different way. What you do with that data once you get it in is really where it becomes powerful. And so you could use the data just to say, I know I need to order more of this, or I need to order less of that, or I have an issue with shrink, meaning I have an issue with theft. And so I see these items there, or I see these items out of place. There's a number of ways in which data is done. I'll say that's the historical view. I think the, you know, the view that we look at now and what I really am excited about is, you know, what are we doing around sustainability and making this data now available beyond B2B, but really to the consumer? Because transparency is such a big driver. Mm -hmm. And so as a consumer, I now want to scan the garment. And so I can scan the garment with just my phone. Other technologies we make like NFC. NFC is very similar to Apple Pay or just a, a QR code that links to this unique identity. And so I know where this garment comes from. Mm-hmm. I know how it's made. I know it's made ethically. And you know, when I think about circularity, what do I do with this garment once it's reached its useful life? Can I put it back on the resale market? We just recently launched our connected product cloud called Atma.io. And we did it with a Lighthouse customer, Adidas, and their infinite play concept, which you know basically allows consumers now to scan their shoe when they're done with their shoe and find out what's the resale value of their shoe on the resale market. So obviously there's incentives to do that. We've kind of closed the loop. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. And I think that's really where, you know, we have a big focus and and really where I'm passionate about is I look at, look, let's be honest, I can have a great impact on making our products more sustainable. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, they're very small. I can have a much greater impact if I can help our customers and industry have much more sustainable value chains. And that's about enabling the circular economy. I mean, when it comes down to it, that's our number one sustainability goal. How can we help our customers identify items that need to be recycled, where they get recycled? We have a big focus now on on enabling the circularity process. And I think as a consumers, that's where a lot of consumers struggle is they want to do the right thing and ensure their their product gets a second life, Mm -hmm. third life even. They don't know where it needs to go, and there isn't always the infrastructure that's been created to support that. And so what can we do around that? It's about identifying those next steps and enabling those next steps You know, through sortation, using our technology to better sort items, because now you've got an intelligent label on it, which is what we really call our technology. So when you talk about data, a couple of things come to mind. One is blockchain, word which is very popular these days. How does your technology fit with that? What is blockchain? So blockchain to me is really, it is a way to authenticate products, track products, track services as well, and really track anything across a multi-stakeholder value chain. So if you were trying to verify a product as comes from an authentic source across various different complexities, hurdles, then blockchain is really looked at as a prevailing technology to do that. Um, So you're seeing blockchain used everywhere from seafood sourcing, cocoa sourcing, uh, beauty product sourcing, apparel. Mm -hmm. 
It's even also used I mean, recently within the news. You hear blockchain referred to more, but cryptocurrency, which is based off of blockchain and really Bitcoin, talked about a lot. It's almost a ability to keep records safe and make it so they're not corruptible. Because as a transaction on the blockchain, you really only have control around your part of the blockchain. And so you can't really affect the upstream and the downstream parts of that. So if you can you can do that, then you increase the authenticity. You also in, you increase the trust behind it. Now we are doing it digitally, but is there a physical way to do it? Like say a company is really small, they cannot invest in the whole digital environment to have the blockchain. I'm a small manufacturer, maybe artisanal. How do I authenticate? There's a number of ways to do it. We actually recently launched our connected product cloud, Atma.io, and it's really an open source application that is meant to connect to other systems. Other engineers can can work and connect to it. And so it's meant to work with these large brands that, Mm -hmm. to your point, have the capex to where they can implement digital systems and then even the small brands that don't. Uh, But even our, our legacy technology, such as RFID, doesn't necessarily require a big digital investment. Uh, there's a, an investment in the consumables, the tags themselves that go on the products. There's an investment maybe in infrastructure that reads the tags. But beyond that, it's it's not a big IT investment as you might imagine, but still provides a lot of the information on traceability and transparency that's really become super important during this pandemic, You know, as we've seen with the need to understand where products are at to match supply and demand. So we are talking about a digital transformation of the supply chain. And that has sort of helped us, like you mentioned, track sources, create an environment where a business can be circular, where companies can be more sustainable. About 80% of the companies in 2020 talked about being sustainable, you know, up about 5% since 2017. How are Avery's products? helping companies become circular. Yeah, I think, you know, to your point, you just hit it. You know, the circular economy is a 4.5 trillion market opportunity. Mm -hmm. There's also an opportunity then to, you know, talk about how the digitization of supply chains is really also going to have a big role in sustainability, really the intersection of digitization and and sustainability. Uh, There was a report done by Accenture, which identified, you know, virtual twins across five different use cases from manufacturing to to tracking of items to reuse models are a $1.3 trillion opportunity. That's really huge when you think about it. But I think if you look at what Avery's doing right now, we're prioritizing by giving everyday items a unique digital identity. And once you've done that, then you really have the ability to know everything about it. We talk about this idea of a product passport or a birth certificate. And so if you know everything that's in a product, you know how it's made, you know, if it uses ethical labor, uh, if it comes from organic cotton, if it's an apparel item, sources, uh, certified palm oil, if it's a beauty product, you know, all that information, you can put that on this unique identity and then track that through your supply chain. So as a brand or a retailer now, you know the carbon footprint of your products because we can track that information, you know where it's come from, you also know when it expires. So in terms of, you know, creating the circular economy, it really, I think in one of the most profound ways to do that is just, it is a big data game. And so you need a lot more data. Mm-hmm. And how do you get data? And how do you make it frictionless? So how do you make it a lot easier? Because I mean, then I think is where you, you'll see the IoT component of sustainability become sticky and really become long-term is that you're going to use this visibility to really feed in, in metrics around our products, around our consumption, 
right now we're working with apparel brands to to help make their garments more circular. And so at the end of useful life, if they want to scan a product as a consumer, you know, they can then be linked to a site that says, okay, your product is worth X amount of dollars on the resale market. So now the apparel companies are happy because they're able to take their product back. Consumers are happy because they're able to get rewarded to, for reselling a product when it normally would have gone to landfill. And so it's really kind of a, a win-win scenario. It's all made by it's all made possible by data. So like Tesla gets updated automatically and your RFID is able to provide that kind of integration or how? Yeah, it's, the way we kind of view our technology is it's different. We'll, we'll call them trigger points. And that's basically the trigger point is what you know connects a consumer or a physical product, let's say a, an iPhone, a, a smartphone, it could be Samsung, it could be whatever, or an RFID-specific reader to the product. And so we can do that with RFID. We can do that through NFC, which is like Apple Pay. We can do that through QR code. Mm-hmm. And then what that does is then links to our connected product cloud. And so now we like to talk about connected products. And so, you know, now this digital record, this digital twin, as we like to call it, now exists. And so brands and retailers can can really use that information for a number of ways. And, you know, I've highlighted some of those, but I think really that's going to continue to emerge in terms of how they want to use that information. But the first part is really getting a unique digital identity on that and the ability to track that. So isn't it labor intensive to place these RFIDs on each tag? Or how does it work? So I buy a package of letters, say, and you would put the RFID on the tag or the bag which has the letters? So typically the, the technology is integrated in labels. It can be integrated in labels. It can be integrated direct into packaging. And so typically when it's connected to a product, you know, when really that product now gets unique to digital identity, is happening whenever this product is getting packaged. And so it's a simultaneous step and it's not something that's happening, I'll say, last mile at the the grower or at the, the packer or the processor. You know, the products are coming in fully ready to be applied and they're already ready with the data. And so now you're able to capture that data throughout the rest of your product lifecycle, taking advantage of all these different use cases, which I've only touched upon. So when you talk about value chain in the food system, what would be the competence there? Yeah, I think for us, you know, really, we have a strategy from farm to fork. And so, and even beyond fork, I'd say, because we want to help enable food rescue. We want to enable, avoid as much food as possible going to landfill. But for us, it starts as furthest up the supply chain as possible. And so there's even other technologies that can layer and even even beyond that. But I think for us, it starts really at the growers, the processors. You know, once you're starting to bring these products together, you're packaging them up for, for either distribution into retail or, you know, other restaurant applications. Um, that's where we like to see our, our technology get applied. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see a bunch of technologies, I think, layering together because that's how you capture and really reduce things like food waste, which is such a, you know, global and pervasive problem. And look at how can we better authenticate our products? How can we ensure that they're meeting our standards? How can we, you know, prove its provenance? You know, provenance is something that is a big deal. I mean, if you look at, you know, just what's recently happened within apparel supply chains and, and even other supply chains, mm-hmm. northern region of China due to labor rights issues there, how can a, a brand sourcing cotton for that region ensure 
they're sourcing cotton that has come from non-forced labor sources. And I think things like blockchain are, are really important to that. Mm-hmm. You're never going to fully reduce the risk, but I think being able to, you know, reduce the amount that, you know, diversion happens and, and there's inauthentic goods out there is really what's going to benefit us all. Um, and certainly that technology is really powerful for that. And now the technology could be available to the consumer? Absolutely. How do I get it if I had to get? There's a number of ways in which we're, we're making that available. You know, it could be as simple as integrating it within an existing brand's app. And so if you're using that app, you know, you can go on and then now as a consumer, I, I verified that this is an authentic source. And so we've launched products over the past year that really are meant for consumers to go in and actually authenticate a product. Mm-hmm. I think you'll also see blockchain happen in other areas as well. We have a big focus on the food and beauty space as well. And, you know, blockchain's already being used in a lot of those areas around verifying sources. You know, this wasn't deforested land. This is certified palm oil. Um, how am I ensuring that, you know, the food that I'm sourcing is really, you know, sustainable? that it's organic. And so blockchain is going to be powerful for that. We have a big focus within the food space just around food waste. And food waste is such an interesting concept to me. Avery Dennison, where all can I find your technology? Like what percent of the market share do you have? That is a great question. What all do you think has an RFID? Depending on uh, items that are of clothing, you know, I'll say a good percent probably had RFID on it at one point. Whether or not it still has RFID on it's probably a secondary question. You know, if you look at the market and really where RFID has been adopted, we, we are by far the number one provider of RFID for, the, for all industries, um, certainly the apparel industry. One of the other, I have a colleague that has an actual RFID reader at home and he actually went into his garage and scanned his garage. And I think you'd be surprised to understand that there is actually a lot of RFE technology in your car, mm-hmm. you know, tracking products so that it can help auto manufacturers trace products and, and really put the car together. It's so fascinating what you do. It's something unusual and something, you know, which is cutting edge technology. And then most important, like all of us know, in today's uh, business world is data, right? You use data for good. You use data for bad, too. Right. I think the data piece is really where we've seen the most progress. Um, this data has always existed, but I think the big nuance that we've seen is this data was really B2B, which served a purpose. But now these Bs, the businesses are making it available to consumers. And so now consumers are able to take that same data that's there and now use it for their decision making. 88% of consumers want brands to help them live more sustainably. They want this data. They want to know more information about the products they buy. And now brands have a mechanism to help communicate that information to them. So we talked about how you're being sustainable outside Avery Denison. What about the culture, the employee culture in your own organization? Yeah, I mean, I think employee culture is very important, you know, and also having a diverse workforce. I mean, obviously, within the past year, there's been a heightened focus on diversity and inclusion across a number of companies. Really, I think it's you know, I haven't seen a company that's not focusing on diversity and inclusion. I like to think that we're taking it a step farther and, and really making it, you know, very, very foundational to what we do and focusing on our, our diversity and also increasing our diversity. You know, we have a big focus, you know, on our communities that we serve. And so our Avery Denison Foundation 
throughout the pandemic has spent a lot of time helping those communities that were so affected by the pandemic, whether that be our employees' families or the communities that we have manufacturing sites or that we serve in other ways, um, giving back. And we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to do it a lot more. About 30 or 40 years ago, when a lot of these eco-friendly products, eco-friendly brands were just emerging, you know, like Patagonia, seventh generation. They were small, almost quote-unquote hippie kind of companies. But off late, there are the Fortune 500 companies like Unilever, P&G, and Avery Dennison have also made sustainability as part of their company goals. What changed? I like to think that a lot of it changed because consumers are now demanding sustainability more. Creating a sustainable product is no longer what's best for the planet, what's best for people. It's really what's best for profit. You know, I think it goes without saying that, I think I saw a stat the other day that sustainable products are growing at more than 4x the rate of traditional products. Mm -hmm. And it's probably even higher than that. And I think that goes to show that as a brand that makes products, you cannot focus on sustainability. Not only focus on sustainability, but you also have to tell your story. You know, why are you making these products? How are they better? You know, what do you bring to market? And, you know, if I look at the total impact of my product, why is it a better outcome? So there's opportunities to really measure a product that maybe is not sustainable to a product that is sustainable. And so I think all these large brands are, they have understood that they're being disrupted by by niche brands that are focused on sustainability, as they should, because that is, you know, we all need to make sustainable products and that's it. When I spoke to the founder of Seven Generation, I said, are you okay with Unilever buying it? He's like, they have done things which a small company could have never been able to do. You know, they have far more market power, financial power, and R&D power, right? Which is far more than a small company is able to do. So there is some value, some advantages in being acquired by a big company. So you alluded a little bit about your goals for 2030. What are your new goals? I think one of our biggest goals is just around having a, a scope three greenhouse gas emission target and, and aspiration. And so, you know, setting a clear target there. I think when we think about climate, you know, we also have an aspiration for 2050 to be net zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at around, you know, I think some countless articles recently about net zero and the buzzword around net zero. But I think you're seeing that because climate has become such a big focus. And I think the pandemic's probably heightened that because now I think the world's seeing what we can collectively do if we really focus on something. We brought vaccines to market in effectively a lot less than a year. And so what can we do with climate change? And so climate's a big one for us because you know, we know that depending on certain, you know, the science and, and how you view it, we have effectively 10 years, maybe a little more, maybe a little less than 10 years, where we need to get active around climate before climate change becomes irreversible. And so a lot of retailers and brands and manufacturers such as Avery Dennison, you know, are viewing climate as such an important focus. And that's certainly how we view it as well. So in terms of just impact, your sustainability impact, do you have any numbers? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we did have a target at one point where, you know, over 50% of our sales have to come from sustainable products. And so that's certainly, that is a number that we're continuing to, to move and push because, you know, we only want to make sustainable products. And so I'd say our impact is 
is helping to push the market to be more sustainable. A few years ago, back before FSC papers were as ubiquitous as I think they become now, we really made a, a strategic decision for the division that I'm in to, to really only offer FSC papers and papers that come from certified sources. Mm-hmm. And so use our economy of scale, use our, our market position to really push the market to adopt certified papers. Um, so I think you'll continue to see us from an impact perspective do that because we want to have you know, we want to be a force for good, which is actually our third sustainability goal if we look at them from a macro perspective. So that is the paper that is used, but how about the data that you help people get? Is there a way to quantify that or not yet? Yeah, I mean, if we think about the number of unique digital items that, that we help to create, you know, we are in the billions, you know, unique digital items that exist out there that we have authored and, and created, you know, that's in the billions on an annual basis. And that is something that, uh, of course, is going up. And I think you'll continue to see us have a role in, you know, providing a unique digital identity for products, which help to enable a, a more circular and sustainable world. How much does this RFID cost? And, you know, I'd say RFID really varies in, in, in different form factors. But depending on the application, you know, it could be anywhere from, let's say, $0.05 cents to $0.10. Cents. It could be more, it could be less. It really varies depending on the application and depending on how it's used. But mm-hmm. one of the reasons in which RFD has become so widely adopted now is because the cost is the cost has become so competitive. And we've done that. A lot of what through us, you know, through economies of scale, manufacturing, sourcing, improvements in manufacturing, but also just through market adoption. How much does your basic technology cost? Yeah, I'd say the technology, you know, varies. But, you know, if you look at a per item level, you know, RFID, you know, has come down around, you know, it's anywhere from really five or 10 cents per unit, depending on on the application. And, and there's obviously, you know, outliers to that in applications. But in general, if you look at RFID, that's it. But if you look at our, our other technologies and we're talking just the QR code or talking just a digital identity, then really there can be nuances with that. But really, we've created solutions that really meet demand. And, and part of that is really building out a robust ROI. And I think one of the key things that I've heard a lot is what's the ROI around transparency? Mm-hmm. Yeah, transparency, you know, if I'm a consumer, makes sense. But also if I'm a brand or retailer, it makes sense as well. You know, I need to understand where my product's at and then where it's been. And, you know, in the example of food waste, having more transparency into my operation, I can avoid X amount of costs around food waste. You know, food waste is, you know, if you, if you follow Project Drawdown, is looked at as the, solving food waste as the number one solution to drawing down our greenhouse gas emissions. And so I think the ROI of transparency is really becoming more apparent. If I'm a business, how long will it take me to break even? I mean, without giving me numbers, like I understand the solution for each person would be different, but a range of uh, break-even point. Yeah, I'd say, you know, we've seen it anywhere. If you look at RFID, we've seen it, you know, definitely anywhere from a few months under a year. And it really varies because, you know, there's really no one-size-fits-all application. But I think, you know, when we talk to customers about break-even points, you know, they're always surprised because in traditional financial ROIs, you look at break-evens as you know, generally payback period being a few years long. And really, when you look at all the benefits that RFID does, it's much shorter with that. You know, I have a sales uplift. I have also a reduction in the inventory necessary to manage a sales uplift. So now I'm making less products. Mm-hmm. I'm also wasting less products, which is 
great for the bottom line, even better for the planet. And so when you factor in that I'm using less to sell more, that's a, I mean, that's a win-win for everyone, I think. So there is a movement towards more refillable economy. And could any of your technology be applied to that? Because one of the articles that you forwarded me is, talks about Unilever using refillable bottles for their everyday products like shampoos, their soaps. Could um, Avery's technology be used there and how? Absolutely. And I'll take a step back for a second just to say, you know, there is a lot of questions during the pandemic, after the pandemic, is what's going to happen to reusable, refillable packaging? If you go to the grocery store, you know, there was a focus back again on single-use plastic bags. And the primary focus was around sanitation. But I'll say that was short-lived. And the projects that were happening around reusable, refillable packaging, there's a focus within consumer packaged goods. There's even a focus in logistics. You know, we've seen the price of wooden pallets for all the e-commerce shipments and, and other shipments go up at 400% in price because there was a shortage. And so this notion of reusable packaging has really come back into vogue again. And it's, it is obviously a sustainability play, but it's also an economic play. And you look at the, the cost of raw materials and, and what we've seen. And so there is a need for brands and retailers that are using refillable reusable packaging to understand a number of different things about that package. One, they need to track when it's gone out, when it's come back in. They need to ensure that it's in compliance with their network. And so in order to take back, let's say, a, a reusable coffee cup, as an example, mm-hmm. you know, ensure that it's been sanitized at the proper sanitation station, you know, understand the amount of times it's been reused because perhaps at some point you want to take that out of circulation. So in order to enable all of these things to happen, this network, you need a unique digital identity to do that. And, and, and those are some of the things that we're helping to provide. And so it's also a way for consumers to engage with that product. And then they learn information about that product. Where do they drop it off? How many times it's been reused? You know, if brands want to convey that, you know, through the use of this product, you've avoided X amount of greenhouse gas emissions, then, you know, they're starting to do that. And so you really, I think you're going to see the reusable or fillable models continue to accelerate in application and, and probably complexity. And Starbucks has started this um, return borrower cup policy in uh, Seattle. They have uh, piloted borrower cup policy in Seattle. Yeah. So are your, is every part of that solution too? Yeah, I'll say we're, we, we're definitely a part of quite a few solutions out there that are looking at the reusable refillable space. Uh, one of the ones in which I'll talk about is this, is this coffee cup startup really that that is based in the UK Cup Club and, and really we worked with them to to use our technology to create a reusable coffee cup that they can then gather that information around how often the coffee cups been reused and then it can go back out into circulation. Mm-hmm. You know, you've seen a lot of the focus on coffee cups because you know obviously that's a product globally that gets consumed to a great degree. And quite frankly, a lot of coffee cups in their design aren't recyclable now. And so there's obviously a focus on, you know, minimizing single-use products, single-use packaging. And so brands are really focusing heavily on that. And Starbucks is one of those. You know, Starbucks wants to be a restorative business. And I think, you know, a reusable coffee cup for them is, is a great way to do that. So we did not talk about the beauty industry. Are you guys involved in that too? Because on an average, at least in my prayers, I have five <laughs> beauty items I never use. 
Yeah, we are. Where the beauty is, so if we look at you know some of the industries where one of the biggest focuses on from the division that that, that I work for, it would be a, apparel, food, and beauty. And so the beauty is definitely a core focus for us. And it sounds like you already are kind of aware around some of the the waste problems that exist within the beauty industry. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw a pretty eye opening statistic that said if you open the the cosmetic drawer of an average consumer, only about five percent of the products there. Are products that get used, the rest are purchased and never used. And so, you know, we create products that go to waste. And so how can we help that? And, you know, you're seeing a lot of focus within beauty industry on clean beauty. And so how can I have more transparency into the ingredients that go into my beauty? And sure, it's not been tested on animals. And so using the, the technology that would make to really authenticate that and ensure that it's coming from natural sources, it's not been tested on animals. But also that I have a, I'm making the right amount of beauty products. I don't have these supply chains that are massive in which these products will never get sold. And so reducing the amount of beauty products that, that ultimately go to waste. There's over 100 billion beauty products that are made annually. So again, it's instances where we make a lot of beauty packaging. Not only the packaging, but also the product itself. Give me one case in which you have prevented food waste. Sure. Give me what it was before and after using your technology, what was the savings? I'll give you an example uh, domestically here in the U.S. So we worked with a retailer focused on really, you know, salads and things like that is what we call a quick service restaurant. Mm -hmm. So if you look at, you know, there's different sources out there, such as Refed, who we're now a solution provider for, for food waste. And they're a great resource for food waste data. But if you look at some of their data around where food waste occurs, a bulk of it in developed countries like the U.S. occurs at, at retail. So upwards of 40% occurs at retail. So we actually, through the use of our technology and through you know expiration management, avoiding product recalls, we reduced food that normally would be wasted by 20%. So it's something that really happy about and really excited about expanding, you know, not just reducing food waste at retail, but also quantifying what does that mean? You know, this food that, that wasn't wasted now can be eaten or it can be identified for rescue. One in eight people are food insecure. And so now this food that would have gone to landfill, if it's not consumed at a retail level, cannot be rescued. You know, ultimately, you know, we're working towards helping support the the 2030 COP goal of reducing food waste by 50%, which you've seen a lot of other organizations globally really take that on. If I understand correctly, the way you are trying to tackle the problem is by the use of technology in the multiple industries that you serve. And some with inventory management in terms of ordering and the others, say, for instance, food at the retail level. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say that's correct. I mean, really, you know, we spend a big time looking at the different ways in which our technology can be used. And as I said at the beginning, I mean, we really were adopted for for inventory accuracy. And that's, you know, really looking at it from a retail perspective. But in my opinion, I think, you know, it's a long overdue to look at what are the benefits throughout the supply chain. And then we don't call it inventory accuracy. We call it waste reduction. You know, how are we reducing waste? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, different ways in which, you know, we can now fulfill better. And so now we're, we're, we're optimizing our deliveries. And so, you know, look, working with retailers on food deliveries. And so, you know, reducing the amount of time it takes to, to unload an order from a food third-party logistics company to a food retailer. And now I save time on my truck idling. 
So now I have less fumes entering the atmosphere. I'm using less energy, um, all because I've been able to really, you know, make this process a lot more efficient. So do you guys get involved in the design process? Because if a process is designed well, you've thought it out, you will eliminate waste in energy consumption and just say it's a textile industry in the waste in the way it's cut. Uh, what you purchase, how much you purchase. Does your company get involved in the design process? Yeah, no, that's a very interesting question. I'll say we're probably not involved in the design, the physical product, but you know, there's ways in which we're now working to to enable the process as well. You know, one of the things that I think we really helped to energize during the pandemic was 3D sampling. So typically 3D sampling of the products we make, but also using a technology to help the different parties that we work with really become more digital. I think there's a big argument for digitization and sustainability. I see it constantly about how these two macro trends are really interconnected for obvious reasons. And I think you'll continue to see that accelerate. Mm-hmm. I also think if we're involved early on in the, in the design process, you know, I think designing for circularity is very important. And then information then needs to be communicated. And, and where does that information go? And we can help to be that communication. And we can help be that touch point because we touch so much of the various industries, value chains that we serve. Now we're helping to communicate products and, well, this is how it's made. So this is how it can be unmade and how it can be recycled and designed for circularity from that perspective. What is 3D sampling? So 3D sampling is really... You know, rather than having a physical product, you know, and wasting materials, now I'm able to view a product now in a 3D model. Mm -hmm. It's a very highly interactive process. And so I can actually see these items. Right. I can do everything except physically touch them. You know, it's accurate colors, it's accurate sizing, so forth. Say we met again in 2030. What would your biggest achievement be? I think the biggest achievement for me would be that our technology is strictly adopted for sustainability. And then everything else comes after that. You know, my goal is that, you know, when we look at the world and the problems that we're trying to solve, we focus on the outcomes. And so we've solved this problem and really understanding how how we solve that becomes secondary because now we focused on this new outcome. Mm-hmm. And to that point, sustainability is no longer called sustainability. We don't even remember that word. It's just become the way it is. It's what's best for people, best for the planet, and best for business. And so we no longer focus, you know, how we used to do business, but this is the way we do business because this is what serves the greater good for everyone. It has to be a way of life. On that inspiring note, thank you so much, Tyler, for coming on Mindful Businesses. Thank you for having me, Vidya. Appreciate it. This is Vidya Iyer with Mindful Businesses. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe and listen to us on your favorite podcast listening app. Remember to rate and review us. To learn more about this and our other episodes, check out our website, mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing or two, share it with one friend. This is Vidya Iyer with Mindful Businesses.